Hello everyone and welcome to Behold, the podcast where we try to answer once and for all, what is the best comic book adaptation? Yes, move your TV show, we'll watch it and rank it until we have our definitive number one. Who is we? Well, I'm your host Andrew and as per usual I'm joined by my co-host Mick. Hello, and just so we're clear, I've never been to Philadelphia. (laughs) Thanks for that Mick. And not as per usual, this week we have a guest, a Mr. Graham Williamson. Hello, I've never enjoyed the taste of Philadelphia spreadable cheese. Fascinating. Apart from that, Graham, where might people know you from? (laughs) Well, I do the Pop Screen podcast on The Geek Show, where every week we cover a different movie starring by or about a pop star. I am a critic, a film critic for thegeekshow.co.uk, and I also write for horrified.com, the British horror website. All lovely stuff. I will also point out as well, both Mick and myself have been on episodes of Pop Screen. I know I did one about the uh, the great hip-hop hoax. Indeed. And, and and I've done a vast array of different things, ranging from the Nightingales to Absolute Beginners. The Absolute Beginners episode is very popular, although I, I said to you last night it has resulted in a lot of my letterboxed friends uh, watching Absolute Beginners, so we've got that on our conscience. Yes, yes, we've... We've opened Patsy Kensit up to a much wider audience. Well, that among your many crimes. That sounded better in my head. Uh, Graham, I believe you have technically sort of been on the show before. Wait, have I? Yes. So, for for audiences who may be as confused as Graham is... Uh, what is now Behold actually started off as a spin-off of our old podcast, Four Panel, of which you were on the episode where we did the Watchmen TV series. Yes, this is true, uh, which is kind of a proto-Behold, isn't it, with us reviewing a big superhero TV series? Exactly, and since it's on our ranking list, it's still yeah. technically canon. Fair enough. It's really, just like comics, we, we have... Very confusing metrics as to what does and doesn't count. Well, welcome yeah, to the, the pop screen multiverse. The four panel I was on was part of the Earth 616 version of Behold. That's right, yeah. Yes, um, that's right. That was right before Crisis on Infinite Beholds, where the entire <laughs> Behold multiverse got rebooted. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 think, I think there's... There's even room, possibly, in the multiverse for us to do a whole animated universe. Okay, but uh, I'm not drawing it. Could do, of (laughs) course. Yeah, you are. Have you seen my drawing? It's rubbish. Finally, just what everyone was clamouring for, this show, but we're all stick figures instead. (laughs) Yep. Anyway, enough of that, because now it's time for us to just absolutely nail someone right in the daddy bags, as we behold a history of violence. <laughs> Yesterday, we are talking about the 2005 film, directed by David Cronenberg, written by Josh Olsen, and based on the graphic novel by John Wagner and Vince Locke. So, guys, uh, 
Are either of you familiar with the comic? Ah, interesting. No. I did read the comic because, and this is probably a spoiler as to my eventual opinion, I was a massive fan of this film when it came out at the cinema. Oh, God damn it, Graham. Fine. That's end of the show, everyone. We've done it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> props, props. Can we get a fence for Graham? I know to sit on? that you prefer to to circle these things for a while, but I'm uh, a creative disruptor who injects dynamic new the, ideas into your podcast. The, the drain <laughs> is what we circle, Graham. The drain. So. <laughs> Graham, seems like this section might be slightly longer than I feared it was initially going to be. What did you think of the comic? Well, I mean, maybe it's just coming to it after I'd seen the film. Maybe it's because I hold David Cronenberg in high regard in a lot of ways, but also as an adapter of material. I was not that keen on the comic. I think it, it, it's hard to really talk about it without getting into the weeds of spoilers about either the comic or the film but it has a whole different third act to the film that is I think radically less effective Yes, I think we'll probably circle back round to it in the discussion but certainly the comic is much more a straightforward action thriller than like a, a character piece Yes, definitely And uh, we haven't done our usual warning, Andrew Oh yes of course. As, as ceremony demands, I will now announce that this show will contain spoilers for the film. And I, in, in my tradition, will point out that it has been around for 16 years, so what have you been waiting for? Probably for it to be recommended by a really neat podcast. And the word continues. <laughs> <laughs> yes, in lieu of that... <laughs> Let's do the spoiler for this. Let's do the uh, the synopsis for this podcast. <laughs> yes. So, a history of violence. Uh, Tom Stoll, Viggo Mortensen, owns a diner in the small town of Millbrook, Indiana. Tom's life is seemingly idyllic. He's universally liked in the town and has the love of his wife, Edie, Maria Bello, and children Jack, Ashton Holmes, and Sarah, Heidi Hayes, the beloved UK sitcom. <laughs> Look, this synopsis is going to be pretty light on jokes, so I had to get at least one in there. Yes. <laughs> so, things take a turn one day when two spree killers, played by Stephen McHattie and Greg Burke, attempt to rob the diner. But, in a surprising display of violence, Tom kills them both. The town praised Tom as a hero for saving everyone else in the diner, but he shies away from the fame seemingly worried about the attention it will bring. Tom's fears come to pass when Philadelphia mobster Carl Fogarty, Ed Harris, begins to harass his family, insisting that Tom is actually Joey Cusack, the hitman who took his eye. Tom denies this vehemently, but it doesn't stop Fogarty from kidnapping Jack and attacking the stall's home. In the ensuing fight, Tom again proves he's no simple diner owner, brutally killing Fogarty's goons. However, he is shot in the shoulder by Fogarty, but before the mobster can finish Tom off, he is killed by Jack. Later in the hospital, Tom admits that he is in fact Joey Cusack, and that he ran away from Philadelphia to escape his violent past. 
to put it mildly, this does not go over well. Uh, with his family life in tatters, Tom receives a call from his gangland brother Richie, William Hurt, who demands he return to Philadelphia to pay for his past crimes against Fogarty. Joey goes to see his brother to try to make peace, but it falls on deaf ears as Richie orders his men to kill his brother. One last time, though, Joey is able to kill his attackers, especially with a really bad throat punch, and then coldly executes Richie. He then returns to his life as Tom Stall, facing an uncertain future with both local law enforcement and his family. Epilogue. Fifteen years later, a podcast host breathes a heavy sigh of relief that finally it's a film with an easy bloody plot to summarise. <laughs> it's, it's No The Boys Season 2 with its 9,000 subplots. No. There are also no what exactly am I saying moments that you would get with a film like, say, Ang Lee's Hulk. Yes, there's not a bit where I just fully break down because I have no idea how to describe the events that occur on screen. <laughs> Distinct lack of giant French poodles. Yes, at no point does Viggo Mortensen's father turn into a big cloud. <laughs> <laughs> God, that's a bad film. <laughs> there is in the director's cut. <laughs> yes. Of course, the fact that it was such a simple uh, plot to synopsize means we've probably got about ten minutes of slack to pick up, Neil. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's a shame because I'm quite enjoying the low-effort work of being a guest rather than a host. <laughs> oh, great. Someone else has done the research instead of me. <laughs> So, um, in terms of a film, I found it quite light on, even though it is quite gory, the mm. violence in it, um, I found it quite lacking in visceral for a David Cronenberg. Yeah. Well, I mean, should we talk about our expectations of Cronenberg? Because I think that's that's a big thing going in. Yeah. I mean... I'll be honest, I expected it to be wall-to-wall mutilation. Yes, yes I, I know. Like, I, I watched this maybe about ten years ago. And I have to admit, first time I watched it, I was a bit disappointed because I was going and expecting, oh, this is just going to be like a really rad David Cronenberg action film. Mm. Like, it's going to be Viggo Mortensen. and mm. he's, he's going to like be doing karate kicks and probably dual wielding some pistols, but with even extra head explosions since Cronenberg. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was expect I was expecting just a simple fist fight to look like the end scene from Cali. <laughs> <laughs> That's what one character stubs their toe and just their entire leg explodes. <laughs> yeah. Stubbing of a toe leads to an arterial bleed from both legs. <laughs> But no. But yeah, so from 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 that point of view, I found it quite Cronenberg light. Mm. Because this was at a point where he'd sort of he'd had an odd nineties. He did all of his defining sort of body horror work in the seventies and eighties. And it felt like in the nineties he made a lot of good films, but he was casting around for a, a direction, I felt. I mean, I have great soft spot for crash but it's not the sort of thing you can build a career on. 
nobody's going to come and say, oh, well, if you can do that, we've got seven other car crash fetish films that we need to find a director <laughs> for. Maybe he'll be good for those. You, you don't you don't think the Cronenberg uh, car crash universe was ready for... I still think that he uh, could be a good release. director for the Fast and the Furious franchise. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I feel so like that's seems... the only place that franchise can go now, isn't it? Yeah, probably. <laughs> Fast and the Furious. I want to say, is it nine they're up to? I think so, yes. But yes, that surely that's got to be the one where Vin Diesel just merges with his car into like a flesh machine abomination. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, if you haven't seen Crash or you think, wait, what, the one that won the Oscar with Sandra Bullock in it? Uh, think of the Queen song, I'm in love with my car. Now come up with the most painfully literal version of that you possibly can. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, back to history of violence. I think certainly going back in knowing that, no, this is more like a character-driven drama with action in it. Mm. Yet, it's a pretty good film in it. I like it a lot. Uh... Yeah. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. Yeah. Um I was a bit confused mm. though. Uh, yeah. Uh, the after the after the visit by Fogarty to the diner, yeah. I I couldn't figure out whether Tom Stoll was Completely oblivious to what Fogarty was talking about, and it was a it was going to lead to being a genuine mistaken identity mm. thing, or whether he was um, genuinely sort of consciously amnesiac. Maybe he'd suffered some kind of trauma, mm. or whether he was suppressing a former past that was dark and deep. I don't think there were there were any real clues in the way that. Mortensen played the mm. role that that led you to think that. So in that way, it was good because it kept you guessing. I think I think it it lacked a predictability that a, a less capable director and cast would have had huge signposts. Yeah, I think the sheer unreadability of Mortensen in this role is one of the main reasons why I think it's such a good performance. Everything about him seems to shift very subtly depending on who he's talking to or what context he's in. Yeah, definitely. And I think that kind of probably underlines a lot of the, the themes of the film as well, doesn't it? It's just mm. like you don't know what kind of violence he's capable of. Like is it just Yeah, sure he's done these things in his past, but he's left them behind. Or is that always just there kind of like simmering under the surface? Like there's definitely a lot of like really weird tense scenes, like even that first bit where he's just like having breakfast with his family and there's just there's something in the way like him and his son are interacting that just feels like there's a little bit of something there beneath the surface. Hmm. Yeah. And I think that's part of what I've always found enjoyable about Cronenberg's work and in particular what I loved about this film as a long-term fan is that he's always had that theme 
of what it really means for a person to change. All of the mutations that you saw in early films like The Fly or Rabbit or Videodrome are really exploring that idea of how closely a person's personality is tied to the biological fact of what they are. I mean, from a strictly materialist perspective, Tom and Joey are the same person. It doesn't matter that every genetic, every biological thing about them is the same and has always been the same. But the way that they exist in society, the way they have to behave, the people around them, makes it, as Mick said, very hard to get a read on who exactly Mortensen is playing. Mm. Yeah, because I mean, I was even thinking today, because I feel like the the main read of the film is that oh yeah, Joey is the man he used to be, and then he decided mm. to reinvent himself as Tom. But I, I think it's it's also equally as plausible that Tom is maybe the person who he has been from the start but Joey is just the persona he had to make up because of what from, from like the kind of hints we get is a very rough upbringing in Philadelphia yeah and I, th- I, th- I think I think that is one of the questions that you are kind of still left with mm. at the end is because we we all do this through throughout our lives, we we adopt personas that protect us in given environments. The person that goes to work in the morning is different to the person who's at home in the evening, and and stuff like that. And this is a a, a sort of more marked version. But you, you, I still found myself at the end, given how how fragile his relationship now was with his family, mm. as to which personas have been crafted to protect him in a given time. Was Joey a product of his environment then? And Tom is the reaction to it and to protect himself from the traumas that did. Or is Tom the real character who's now allowed to live and breathe? Hmm. Or is Joey the the actual person that, you know, is he an absolutely just natural-born killer? that is now being suppressed by this character of Tom, and is Tom just a veneer that, you know, given the right um, stimulus, just cracks and yeah, Tom hulks out? Well, <laughs> I'm glad you said that, because, yeah, this is where it does cross over with some of the other films that are, we feature on this podcast, because the same year that this came out, Christopher Nolan released Batman Begins, and part of Christian Bale's character breakthrough with that was realising that, to him, Bruce Wayne was the mask. Bruce Wayne is who he pretends to be, this sort of glad-handing, lightweight playboy. And Batman is the real person that he's finally allowed to let out. So it, it has that aspect in it, even though it's obviously not a superhero film. It deals with a recognisable comic book concern of who is the alter ego here? Yeah. Breaking news, I'm right. Breaking news. <laughs> Breaking news, that's what Mortensen was going for. <laughs> followed by a, followed by a, an advert from Domino saying, love sausage. Well, 
Which I think is a disturbing one on Valentine's <laughs> Day. I also feel like it's maybe... Just I think, surely it's getting I'm, confused I'm, I'm with Eastern with a question promises. mark after it, rather. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just glad there was a question mark after it, rather than an exclamation mark. <laughs> um, but I'll... Yeah, it was... So for me, this is like like you say, this is like a later Cronenberg, and I think possibly um, he's used this as a vehicle to explore this exactly the same sort of themes as he's done in the past about transformation, mm. mutation, evolution, yeah. if you like, but um, in a much subtler way. You know, he's not turning into a fly here. You know, he's just transitioning from one one form of person into another. Mm. And it the lines are blurred. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And it's, it, it's interesting because Cronenberg was always kind of a distinctive horror director, not just in that his films were good, but in that he had a clearly defined set of ideas. For instance he was never interested in the paranormal and it's very hard for me to think of another horror director who has never tackled paranormal themes in any of his work so once you've isolated that he is a director whose core themes happen to work well within horror you realize that those themes are then being ported into into this into the gangster movie in eastern promises into the costume drama in a dangerous method which i don't think anyone saw coming but uh, worked quite well <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so yeah it's um it's nice to see it, it's nice to see that sort of progression of work rather than right i do body horror as a an allegory mm. for this, and that that's where I'm yeah. staying. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, it, and I guess it's probably as well because he's built up this career and this reputation. He can now say, "Okay, I can I can take a bit of a risk with a film that isn't as you know shocking and gross as something like The Fly, and still mm. know that like mm. people are going to come to see it." Because there are people who watch David Cronenberg films because they're by David Cronenberg rather than I'm going to watch this film because look how gory it is. And also some of us yeah. who watch it because both. Yeah, we should point out, I, I think we made this sound a bit like a Merchant Ivory film, but we should point out that when it is violent, it is extraordinarily violent. It It is extraordinarily violent. I mean... Like I say, it it was it was less. It was probably more violent than I would have expected, mm. but um, less no. More violent than I would have expected from the subject matter described in the sort of synopsis that you get on the back of a yeah. DVD. Or in this case, a VHS, because apparently it was the last proper Hollywood movie released. Was it? I wish I'd got one of those. That would be collector's item (laughs) now. (laughs) But, um, yeah, so based on the synopsis, it it was more violent than you would expect from that. 
But as I said before, it was less over-the-top violence than I would have expected from having watched Cronenberg's earlier mm. works. Yeah, in fact, um, I would say probably... There, there was an awful lot, but... <laughs> yeah, I think, like, definitely the bit where, like, Viggo Mortensen shoots a guy in the head and, like, the bullet that explodes his entire lower jaw. That's very Cronenberg, isn't yeah. it? Yes. It is, yeah. But that's also, that's the end of, I think, the sequence where I realised, oh, God, this film is going to be that good, isn't it? Because those two guys, the Stephen McCatty and the other dudes, I can't remember mm-hmm. the other dude because unlike Stephen McCatty, he isn't in every single Canadian film. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, they're terrible guys. You know, you're introduced to them as they shoot yeah. a child. They're irredeemable. Yeah. And they come into Tom's Tom's Diner, should be a song called that. Um and I'll I'll just ring my friend Suzanne. <laughs> no, I was asking for the third floor, Luca. Transfer it downstairs. <laughs> uh yeah, but they're irredeemable. And when Tom starts fighting them. We are absolutely on his side, and it's this burst of like yeah. uncomplicated action hero violence, completely alien to the more troubling violence of something like Shivers. And then at yeah. the end of it, there's that sort of there's those two shots one with, as Andrew says, Stephen McCatty's face half blasted off, and him still like struggling for breath, and the other showing Mortensen just standing there with his gun in the frame, angled as though it was pointing at his own head. And I just... I mean, for context, this came out in the same year as Spielberg's Munich, which also questions the effectiveness of action hero-style violence through the medium of endless dinner table conversations that feel like they go on for about eight hours. And Cronenberg just does it in two shots. It's fabulous. It's absolutely yeah. what I want from a film. And I think it, the other thing is, I mean, it, quite apart from the fact that we've we've already had the shot at the motel that that, that sets up the irredeemable qualities of uh, McCabe mm. and friend. Um, you've also got a quintessential save the cat moment in in the shot in the diner. Yeah. Because it's his staff, his staff are, and you get the feeling that, you know, a lesser diner owner <laughs> would have just caved and, you know, given them the money. There'd have been a yeah. massacre. Yeah. Um, so it, it serves that purpose as well in that scene that, yes, this is the guy you should be rooting for. And it, it sets it up so firmly that later. You still find yourself doubting when you're thinking, hold on, this is a bit unsafe. Yeah, he can't be that bad, can he? He seemed all right to his staff. Yeah. 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 Especially, I think the Diner film is interesting as well, if you compare it uh, with the original comic. Because, kind of, the idea that that spins out from, and to be honest, I think it's an idea that the, the comic doesn't really actually deliver that well. But it's based on the idea mm. of it being this kind of power fantasy of, well, you know, like, what if I did say, come home, and there was a burglar in my house, w- would I be the kind of guy who could, like, 
you know, fend him off, be the be the big action hero. Or he the guy that would help him carry the ca- telly out to his car. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, whilst making him a cup of tea. <laughs> so should we talk a bit about the comic? Because I, I, I do... I think Cronenberg is very strong with adaptations. I think the only times when he's maybe fumbled a bit are ones like something like Naked Lunch, where the the audacity of adapting Naked Lunch is part of the gag, and of course it isn't going to be you know exactly like the book because it can't be. But when he's adapting something like Stephen King's The Dead Zone or the original film of The Fly, I think he's very adept at knowing exactly what changes should be made. Yes, because I think it's it's a conversation we've had a few times on the show before of, you know, is is it better to just be incredibly faithful and, you know, adapt almost one-to-one things from the, from the comic, like... Well, that, that's kind of the reason why Sin City is so high on our list is the way it can like recreate whole comic book panels. Yeah, it's all—it's almost like it's the the ultimate exactly. Motion comic. And in, it, I can completely understand why Robert Rodriguez would look at the comic of Sin City and think, "Oh, well, this is this is a storyboard. You know, it's all here." Yeah. Yes, but then there is also the other side of it of things like this. And we talked about it a lot with the boys as well, of being able to look at the source material and say, this works, this bit doesn't actually work as well, so maybe mm. I'll just get rid of that. Basically knowing what is going to make the best film rather than just what do we need to include because it was a thing that happened in the comic. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you, and you see that quite a lot in adaptations, whether it be of novels or, or comics. You'll you'll see maybe two or three characters amalgamated into a single character mm. um, in the transition to the screen, um, partially due to budget and partly because they don't have fully formed narrative paths as individual characters. Mm. But you say that the whole third act Completely, yeah. The resolution of the Richie plot is like night and day uh, because it's been a while since I read it, but my memory of it was that in the comic, Richie is a pretty decent guy who falls in with the wrong crowd and the mobsters who are still, you know, the comic's main villain get Tom slash Joey to come back to them and fight them by revealing that they still have Richie alive, being tortured. Yes, and he's like in some weird kind of like harness thing hanging from the ceiling and all his limbs are chopped off and like he's got one eye and it's it's very much the kind of thing you expect from the creator of Judge Dredd. It is very <laughs> telling, I think, that the man who directed Videodrome looked at that bit and thought, it's a bit daft, isn't it? Yeah, S- steady on, pal. That's a bit much. <laughs> and I, I, I think from the way, from the way you describe it, going back to rescue Richie, who's being mm. tortured, that sounds very much more like a Tom mm. thing to do than it does a Joey thing to yeah. do. Yeah, and I think the problem is, is that if. 
Tom slash Joey's motivations at the end are heroic, you haven't explored that duality in him. And worse, you haven't even made the gangsters mean something. The gangsters in a history of violence, the film, are only there briefly, and they're kind of caricatures, but they're interesting because they represent a version of what the lead character might be. Whereas in the comic, yeah. they're just baddies. Yeah, so they are baddies to get killed in entertainingly violent ways. Hmm. So yeah, I was quite disappointed by it. I also thought the other thing about it was that, as I say, in both the film and the comic, the gangsters seem fairly stereotypical, but for some reason, and I wonder, Andrew, if you might be able to illuminate that because you've presumably read it more recently. For some reason, in the movie, that doesn't bother me and they feel like just archetypal gangsters of a kind which work here. But in the comic, it bothered me a lot. Yeah, I think I think the easy answer for me would just be it's probably down to like the strength of Ed Harris and William Hurt like selling those performances. It's true, yeah. But yes, I think with the comic as well, it's again, because the great thing about the comic is that it's got an introduction by John Wagner basically telling me all the things I need to think and feel about the comic. So I don't have to do any of that pesky interpretation business. <laughs> is that apparently like what interested him in the first place is this idea of, well, what would it be like, you know, if just an everyday ordinary guy got into this kind of situation but then i think because he is john wagner and he has kind of come up through the ranks of doing these don't get me wrong, very good but still quite over the top comics that inevitably mm. that ends up just seeping in and it kind of just pushes it a bit too far when you've got the mm. near blind gangster who has one of tom's fingers in a little vial around his neck yeah, I'd forgotten that, but yeah, that is a bit daft. Yeah. Yeah, it's also, and it's also, I think yeah. the, the art doesn't do, like, that good a job with it. Like, it's kind of one of those things where it focuses on being, like, more realistic than expressive. And I think, again, that maybe yeah. just helps to highlight this is all a little bit silly, isn't it? Also, in what the comic, his daughter looks like an actual, like, doll brought to life, and it's very creepy. I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> what else has Vince Locke done? Um, not a lot that I'm aware of. I might uh, have a little searchy search for him. Oh, right. I'm on his Wikipedia page, and apparently he's noted for his album covers for the band Cannibal Corpse, which... Not gonna lie, it does explain a fair bit. It does indeed. Yeah, it looks like he's he's done kind of a few kind of Judge Dread Batman things. Hmm. But yeah, he's not to be unfair. I'd, I'd say from the looks of it, he's probably a bit of a, a workman artist. Looks like. Yeah. So I think maybe the overarching problem, for me at least, is that they both spring from this idea of interrogating one of the essential pleasures of the medium. 
But the history of violence, the comic, doesn't say as much about comic book vigilante stories as a history of violence the movie says about cinematic vigilante stories. Yeah, I think the, the comic's ultimate takeaway is just, actually, yeah, violence is pretty bad, isn't it? <laughs> like, what, what if we just had a guy chop his own head off with a chainsaw? That would be cool, wouldn't it? <coughs> And I, I don't know, there's probably some kind of moral lesson that violence is bad. Except for this violence. <laughs> this violence is so cool. Also, do I, I joke, but it's also maybe a slight problem with the film is that as much as it is, you know, violence is bad and it can destroy lives, mm. it is pretty cool when Big O Martinson just punches a guy in the throat and his whole windpipe collapses. <laughs> yes. Uh, as mentioned yeah. in the introduction, when his son's getting bullied at school, and he just kicks the guy right in the nuts, and then just wails on another guy, and it's like, yeah, he deserves that though, doesn't he? <laughs> One of the things with those school bullies I loved the most that I'd completely forgot about before uh, I rewatched it is there's a scene where they're throwing the weight around in a parking lot. And they drive off and almost immediately cut up another cab. And they look over, ready to just glower us and intimidate whatever harmless little old lady they imagine must be driving this. And it's Stephen McCatty and his friends who just terrify them completely. Which I think is a very neat yeah. way of setting up the, the film's idea of violence as a thing that creates hierarchies. Yeah, it's not like it definitely draws a distinct line between no, a bunch of jocks threatening to beat you up is is miles apart from like genuine murderers. Mm. Also, I think it's also a very neat touch that the car that the killers are driving is like a huge pickup truck thing and the kids themselves are in like some kind of more low-down car just so there's that, that literal height difference as well really underline the point. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's great. It's also oh, the other thing like that I wanted to mention that I think is really incredible, possibly one of my favourite things about the film, mm. is the idea that with every action scene, I mean, I say every action scene, kind of the three or four action scenes in the film, it's always Viggo Mortensen, you know, will kill the baddies, but in return he also like himself gets wounded. Yes, yeah. And that's just, I think that's a really yeah, clever yeah. way of showing like the central theme of you know, violence like always has a cost. Like even if you mm. resolve your issues, you are still going to be like physically or metaphorically scarred from the experience. Yeah, and I think, I think that even, um, if I remember right, I think that even ends up the same when he when he has the fight with the wife, mm, yeah, um, that he ends up scratched and and bruised from that as well. So it it it, it even sends that message across, regardless of the scale of the violence. Yeah, that's very true. And Maria Bello is really good in this, isn't she? I feel like that performance got underrated on release because I guess your Vigo Mortensen and your William Hurt are doing more like flamboyant acting, but she is really good in a really difficult part. 
yeah, I think it's it's probably the curse of being a really good actor in what what is genuinely a supporting role. Mm. Like it is her job to kind of amplify a lot of the performances of other people, and that can a lot of the time go unnoticed. Yes, absolutely. I think my favourite moment in her performance is quite early on, where I guess this is where the theme of you know shifting personas is introduced, but uh, they try to spice up their marriage with some role play and she's pretending to be a cheerleader and there's this lovely little character beat where she takes off his belt and throws it across the room and instinctively just looks over to check that it hasn't hit anything. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> no matter how hard she tries, she is still a very house-proud mother, much as we find that, you know, Viggo Mortensen's character cannot outrun who he was in the past either. Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess it's that, that probably, like, ties into the ending of it as well where, where the family maybe forgive him and i think that's yeah, kind of that's still a place at the table yeah, yeah. and that's kind of that, that also adds another yeah. interesting element of i mean is Edie like really that forgiving or is it just that no she's also kind of trapped in this role of being the housewife and she kind of mm. doesn't know what she'd do if she wasn't and I, I guess there's also there's also the question of you know given what she found out about mm. Tom, is she fearful for what might happen if if she doesn't do that? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a part of it as well. And you know, even though the story isn't about that in the sense that her problems don't drive the narrative, I think she does a very good job of getting it across while being in that supporting role. Yeah, I think there's also, um, in terms of its genre, it is kind of interesting for me because um, obviously we've mentioned that it kind of shades into superhero territory with its look at the alter ego. My pet hot take on the history of violence for many years was that it was a Western Mixed pupils are going around in a way that I can't quite tell whether that went down okay or not. <laughs> See, it is, I'd say it's maybe one of those things. Because obviously the, the main descriptor of the film is that it is a noir film. But mm. I think that, and with a Western, if like you take out the central ideas that, oh, well, it's a noir film, you know, if it's black and white and it's set in like New York or Chicago. Whereas it's it's a mm. Western if everyone's wearing cowboy hats and there's, you know, kind of plains yeah. and mountains in it. If you remove those elements, what does make a film a noir or a western? Yeah, and I think if you remove those elements, what you should be left with is central themes. And I think this film's central theme of the homestead as a respite from violence, but also as something that was perhaps built on violence, is a very weird theme for a film noir. Film noirs are not usually about family and home and settlement, but westerns always are. Hmm. 
But of course, that also means that if a history of violence is a western, then it is also a samurai film. <laughs> That's true. Or at least can be successfully adapted into a samurai film, which, yes. <laughs> oh, well, in that case, it could probably get remade as a sci-fi. I mean, conceivably, yeah. There's plenty of sci-fi to western genre traffic. Yeah. I imagine romantic I comedy proved... Romantic comedy is probably where we have to draw the line though. <laughs> yes. We've successfully proved. Oh, but wouldn't you want to see it? <laughs> I'm sure someone's recut the trailer to make that happen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean all you have to do is that, that scene you mentioned, the cheerleader yep. scene. Um all you have to do is, is like slightly extend that scene so that when she flings the belt, the lamp goes over and it sets the curtain on fire. <laughs> <laughs> Gives you your farcical element for your rom com. Ed Harris can be the old college boyfriend come back to take her away. <laughs> he was the one who took her to prom. That's really how he lost the eye. <laughs> when he tried getting too fresh in the car park after prom. Yep, guys, I think we've done it. Well, I will eat yeah. my words. We have remade it as a romantic comedy. <laughs> <laughs> so, now, apart from fixing David Cronenberg's film, you're welcome, David. I think it's now about time <laughs> that we, uh, we ranked it on our list. <laughs> so, Graham, since, okay. since uh, well, you're relatively you. new, I shall give you a bit of a rundown for the list. So it is currently okay. going from 1 to 32, with Rotopedition at number 1, Hellboy at number 2, Jessica Jones Season 1 at number 3, Sin City at number 4, and The Boys Season 2 at number 5. And then we go down through the middle rankings. We've got about uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 1 at 12, Birds of Prey, the 2020 movie at 13, all the way down to the realms of ignominy with the 1990s Captain America at 31, and as you may have guessed from the intro, 30 Days of Night at 32. And 33, 34, <laughs> 35, 30 Days of Night all the way down. Yes, we're, we have often joked that 30 Days of Night <laughs> is just in its own special corner. It's kind of Division 2. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, obviously... There are some things there, particularly the TV things that I haven't seen, but uh, a lot of the films I have. And I I am not trying to influence your ranking, but if I asked myself, is this better than Road to Perdition? I would say yes. Yeah, I do believe that. Now, here's the mm. thing, because there's a crucial element yeah. to this, which is the best adaptation. Well, yeah, and I haven't read the original comic of, of Road to Petition, so I can't say how that stacks up. But I think in terms of the art of adaptation, in terms of taking an idea and polishing it until you've made the best film you can out of it, it's also pretty hard to match on that front as well. It is. I would say, having read Road to Petition, that film is also not massively faithful to the uh, the comic book. I mean, I think, again, it is a similar version of taking a lot of the broad mm. strokes of the comic and kind of 
merging some things together, dropping bits that don't work, kind of polishing up some other bits. And I, I, I think that's that's where we probably got a bit of a problem with that definition of the best adaptation. Mm. Because take it in its literal sense, the best adaptation will take the comic book, Sin City, in, in as a, a case in point, take the comic book and just plonk it on the silver screen, using the comic book as the storyboard for the movie. Um, but then there's something about the fact that you... I mean, I un, until it was uh, put on the list to do as part of Behold, I was unaware that the history of violence... And, and Saul, the same with apparently Saul was Cronenberg when he first got it. He got a script as a director for hire from Josh Olsen and only found out when he was into pre-production that there was a comic book it was based on. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I think this is kind of the interesting point I was, I was making a little bit earlier. The best adaptation mm. is not necessarily the most faithful adaptation. Because, I mean, if it yeah. was, the, the show would be pretty so... easy. It would just be going... Yes, this is the film that is the most like the comic it's based on, therefore this is the best long. Yes. Yeah. But it's more about yeah. what is the Because again, the whole point of adaptation is you are taking something that is made for one medium and kind of turning it into a completely different medium. And so as part of that, it's about yeah, acknowledging yeah. what will and won't work if you make those changes. Now, the issue for Cronenberg me is, mm. is that I just really bloody love the cinematography of Road to Perdition. I mean, there is that, yeah. yeah. It's a, a history of violence, I think, is, is restrained to the right degree visually, but Road to Perdition just looks fantastic. I think the other thing that is biasing me slightly is that whereas I do really like Road to Perdition, I find... Sam Mendes's general sort of themes of family and uh, I guess kind of national identity, which is one of the few things I can think of that ties American beauty to Skyfall. Um, I, I just find those <laughs> less compelling than Cronenberg's themes of mind-body duality and innate personhood. It's well. I guess being, again, as we are a three-man show, so, Graham, mm. your mm -hmm. preference would be that History of Violence would be our number one film, correct? Correct. And I think in my heart of hearts, my preference would be that it would be our number two film. So, Mick, okay. for once, you can have the deciding vote. Right, well... As the events of the past week have shown, democracy is dead. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> do you know? Do you know what I? I think because I did enjoy Road to Perdition. I think I enjoyed this more because because it felt more real, because it was less glossy, because it was less gorgeous, because it was less beautifully shot. It was. It was shot in a way that, that told the story effectively. And also because I think it's about bloody time someone knocked Road to Perdition off its lofty perch. I'm going to side regret. That's fair. Road to Perdition has been number one for so long. It's It's been longer. It's been number one longer than 30 Days of Night 
existed as a film. <laughs> I, well, there we go. On a historic episode of Behold, we have our new number one. Congrats, a history of violence. That's, I mean, I've joked about road division before, but this is it, isn't it? It's like, it's, it's probably not going to get knocked off the top spot, is it? <laughs> well, not until a history of violence rom edition <laughs> sees a release. Yes. Yes, that's God, we are going to we are going to have to make our own number one film now. Well, <laughs> I mean, do we keep the same cast? Oh, I think that could be interesting. Yeah, yeah, with uh, William Hurst as the headmaster at the high school. Yeah. Mm. Now, is Heidi Hayes still playing, like, a five-year-old girl? I haven't seen her recently, but I feel like she would struggle to inhabit that role now. If 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 Olivia Newton-John can play a high school... Yeah, it's, it's fine. We'll just put shoes on her knees. <laughs> <laughs> One thing is certain, though. If it's going to be made in Canada, you've got to have Stephen McCatty in it. That's just Canadian law. I mean, he yeah. was in Orphan Black, so I have absolutely yeah. no problem with this. Yeah. Also. Oh yeah, it's 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 a meeting of the Orphan Black. It certainly is. Yes. Oh, yeah. actually, actually, yeah. new plan: History of Violence rom-com edition, but every role is just played by Tatiana Maslany. <laughs> Which, which then makes it a, a spin off exactly. from uh, Orphan Black. As, as well. everything she is in is. Excellent. Yes. Yes. Boy, we're really going to have trouble fitting She Hulk into this theory, aren't we? That that That's the clone where it was uh, the cloning project leader's headquarters was too close to uh, a gamma radiation source. I mean, that is a big <laughs> change to Orphan Black's mythos. <laughs> Actually, do you think what we maybe need is just kind of to hire Tatiana Maslany to, to film us a get-out scene where it's just her waking up in bed going, that was a weird dream. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, no, 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 no. One of the clones gets adopted by the Walters family and grows up as Bruce Banner's cousin. And just in, in normal off and back, they just conveniently never mentioned. Remember that time New York got attacked by aliens? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, they had other concerns on their mind. Yeah. Yeah, I think we've we've nailed that, haven't we? We have. Yeah. Nailed it just like a kick to the daddy bags, <laughs> bringing us completely full circle. <laughs> So that's about it from us. Uh, thank you, Graham, for joining us. Uh, do you want to mention again where people can find you on the old interwebs? Yes, I'm a critic for horrified.com. I'm on thegeekshow.co.uk. And as Andrew and Mick know full well, all too well perhaps, I am also the host of Pop Screen, a geek show podcast about pop stars in movies. Fantastic. And if you want to find more of us, you can listen to all our old episodes on the feed or just wherever you get your podcasts. And if you do subscribe to the show, you'll make sure you never miss an episode. 
if you do want to get in touch, our email is beholdpod at gmail.com or you can follow us on Twitter at beholdpod. And if you are a fan, we'd really appreciate it if you did leave us a review on your podcast app of choice or even just recommended us to a friend. It is the best way for us to grow as a show and reach you listeners. So that's everything. Until next time, I've been Andrew. I've been Graham. And I've been Mick. So long, and thanks for listening.